Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our first-time slash second-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh. How are you? Very good. Very good. Christian is all the way over in, you're in the Netherlands, right? I am still in the Netherlands. However, I have changed towns, but we can talk about that in a few minutes. And with us, as always, could do without him, the awesome button-pushing guy, Jason Rugg. Hey there. Hello. Hey, Jason. Uh, and today we have a special guest, also all the way over in Europe somewhere, is the co-producer of The Girl Who Wore Freedom and The Brave Dutch and translator for The Girl Who Wore Freedom, the awesome Michelle Coupe. Hello, hello Michelle. Hi. Jason and Josh and Josh, you did a great job with my last name. Oh, great. Impressed. Uh, we have to give Michelle kudos. She jumped on this podcast as well as it did everybody else at the very last minute. So thank you guys. My schedule has been kind of crazy. I really appreciate your flexibility. Absolutely. And so Jason, uh, Jason, I'm sorry, Josh, for interrupting. Jason, I want to give you a heads up. I'm going to throw out a lot of things that you're going to have to look up <laughs> so that you can um, get the links and put them in the notes. So just FYI. Okay. I'll, I'll... Back to you, Josh. <laughs> I'll get my fingers warmed up. <laughs> All right. Back to you, Josh. Well, um, before we started recording, uh, you know, it's funny, you know, sometimes Christian will say, I have nothing to share. There's nothing going on, you know, and, and so then we'll talk about well, what can we talk about, you know. Well, today it's like there's it was the most incredible day. I can't remember what happened yesterday. And that was an incredible day. So I uh, hopefully you got your thoughts organized, Christian, because we want to hear about the incredible things going on. But there's there's really two things. There's the girl or freedom and the brave Dutch. Do you want to share what's going on with the girl or freedom first? Yes, I do, actually. And yeah, it has been so incredible and crazy that I can't really remember what happened the day before. But today's information that came across landed in my email, uh, email inbox, and I was totally stunned. I couldn't believe it. And so I'm just going to read it to you because I'm not quite sure it's really real. So I got this letter in my email. It says, greetings. We are looking forward to have meet you at the Lebanese Independent Film Festival 2021 edition. And I was like, wow, we're in the Lebanese Independent Film Festival. That's incredible. And then just today, I got another email saying that we won the best international documentary category. Wow. I know. I know. And so I was completely like thinking, is this real? And then I looked it up. And it is real. And like the American consulate was there and the French consulate was there. And I guess it was a really big deal. But, you know, I wasn't there, sadly. I guess I can't be in Europe and in Lebanon at the same time. But anyway, so good news for us. That's our first Middle Eastern laurel. Oh. Yeah. That's fantastic. Cool. So now we've won awards in the United States, France, and the Middle East in Lebanon. Did they treat this as a virtual uh, event? No, it was a real event, a real event with a live audience. And um, yeah, somehow we won. I usually, I think, well, if I'm there, then maybe they'll give me an award, but I wasn't there and we still won. Wait, wait, wait. you didn't even know what was going on until after the fact? 
no, that's not true. I kind of read that out of order. I did know what was going on, but I did forget about it. I kind of forgot about it. And then I got the email today and I remembered, oh, we were in it and then we won. So it was like you learned about it for the first time. It was because you- <laughs> totally, totally. I was like, oh, wow, we were in and we won. But the Brave Dutch has kind of washed everything out of my head. This has been such an incredible amazing three weeks that it's really been hard to remember I had a life before this I mean Michelle did you expect it to be like this when we started this journey this you know three weeks ago no it was a completely different experience um and because you know we haven't been there before and so um we learned so much and i think we kind of expected it to be like normandy and it wasn't at all that way so that was a lot of new discoveries about um not only the the occupation you know during the war and how more difficult they they seem to have it than the the normans did and the french did so it was all so much information to take in. Yeah, and Michelle, don't you remember when we first started out? We we I met Michelle in France. She grac- you know graciously hosted me there. We saw our old girl who wore freedom friends had some reunions. It was wonderful, but we couldn't quite pull our schedule together. Like we didn't know we couldn't set anything in stone. Not for the market garden events not uh, for anything after that with the Brave Dutch. And so I was getting kind of discouraged, you know, at the beginning thinking, is anything going to come from this? You know, Michelle, what do you think? Yeah, but I always think, and the same thing happened for you in Normandy, um, nothing really happens until you're there. You know, they can try to plan for there. But honestly, and especially the first time, you just gotta you just gotta experience it for yourself and take it all in, and then you end up having just some amazing um, uh, contact with with people and in the place and the country. And so it's it's after all, it ended up being so much richer than I think you'd have probably, and I know for me that I ever imagined. Yeah, I would totally have to say that was the case. And you're right, Michelle, in some instances, it's you just have to jump in, you know? So this story has been living in my mind, you know, since I was a child, even, you know, there was a podcast that uh, John Lau's grandson did called The Brave Dutch. You can look that up, Jason, please Google that and put it in our notes. Uh, it is The Brave Dutch Podcast. And that um, podcast is actually the grandson reading the book that John Lau wrote shortly after he was back behind Allied Lines. So I've been listening to the story, reading it, and even talking with my uh, co-producers here in the Netherlands, Tulai van Manen and Joey um, van Meesen. I've been talking about them to them for over six months about this story. And so I thought, you know, I knew a lot, maybe we would um, meet some people, strike up some partnerships. What I wasn't really prepared for, and I don't know why it happened in The Girl Who Were Freedom, I should have learned the first time, is that you get here and it's like pulling away an onion. You meet one person and then you meet another person and then things are connected and you learn new stuff. And before you know it, you have this incredible story that you never knew you had. 
Um, and so that's kind of what's been happening, don't you think? Yeah. So Christian, I, you got to do something today that I wasn't able, I was, we were together for 10 days in the Netherlands and I had to come home. And so today was a, I think a pretty special day for you. Uh, what did you end up seeing? I was, I was kind of disappointed to not be there with you, but I'm sure it was a, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I really feel like Anybody who is interested in World War II history really needs to make an opportunity to visit this place. Um, it's called the Orange Hotel. And of course, it's not a hotel. Um, it is definitely less than that. It was nicknamed that by the prisoners that were kept there. Um, this place is in The Hague, or De Hague, which is what they call it here. Um, not far from the ocean. The, ha uh, the Hague is a beautiful place, which I only just was able to see for the first time today. Uh, but I started my day in the Orange Hotel, and it was initially owned by the Dutch and used as a prison place. Uh, but when the Germans came in, of course, they, they took it over and they then began turning it into an internment camp. And they would put... Um, you know, Jews there, Jehovah's Witnesses were there, uh, but mostly it was for the Dutch underground and the resistors. And it is a giant set of buildings uh, in this downtown area where they would come in through this door, this huge, gigantic door. It almost looks like a castle on the front. They would walk through there. They would be put in an interrogation room and sometimes stood up against a brick wall with their noses to the brick wall for hours. And they had to stand there without moving before they were interrogated. Um, and then they were kept in these tiny little cells. Um, sometimes it could be three, four, five people. There'd be one bed in there, one little fold down table and a stool and a, a pot for the potty for everyone to, to use. Uh, absolutely no privacy. Um, of course, their food would get shoved into them, and if they didn't grab it quickly enough, it would fall on the floor and be gone. Um, there was a specific room for torture there, um, and you know, all sorts of people were there. There were women, there were children, there were men. There, there was even one American service member there who crashed in the area and got thrown in there. Over 700 people were killed there. Um, they had these big poles that they would stand them up against the poles and shoot them. Um, and, you know, I mean, it just horrific things happened there. So we went there because Tulai Van Manen um, really encouraged us to go and visit. We knew at the beginning that there was at least one person in our story, uh, Narda um, Tervigsa, who was kept there. She was in charge of the underground group that kept John Lau alive for his time, you know, when he was in Appledorn. Um, she was eventually, her group was compromised. She was captured and she was kept in the Orange Hotel and tortured there. Um, and since I've been here, uh, when Michelle and I went out to dinner with a man by the name of Martin Storm Benz Gravesander. Hey, look at that. I got it. These Dutch names are not for the faint at heart. Um, we learned that his father Ludwig had been kept there. Um, and, you know, of course, that was a brand new surprise to us. So 
Um, and we're actually meeting with Martin tomorrow. So we're going to learn more about his father's story. Well, when we went there today, I went there with Tulai and Joey Van Neeson. Both of them are researchers. Both of them have uh, resistance members of their, you know, in their family. Um, and it turns out we found evidence, um, you know, of Tulai's great grandfather being there. So his name was Schatzman, and he was a member of the. Oh, he was an overseer in the underground area. He was compromised, captured, put in the Orange Hotel, moved from there to another place and assassinated. But we also found out that Joey Van Meesen's great uncle was there and really? he was killed there. Yeah. And so they have preserved one cell exactly like it was. So in, um, in 1945, when, when we were liberated, um, of course, all of the resistor, you know, all the people in the Orange Hotel were released at that time. And then all the Nazi criminals were put in there for a, a few days. Um, and when they were taken out of there, it then uh, somebody in the Dutch government was in charge of the Orange Hotel and they chronicled everything that was in there. And there were tons of messages. I think one of the most powerful things I saw there today were all sorts of messages that were scribbled on the walls. And I was stunned to find there was the Lord's prayer on the walls. There were crosses on the walls. There were things that said, you know, um, I am in here because I tried to help people. I mean, just powerful sayings um, from people on the walls of those cells. And they did decide, they took pictures of everything, chronicled it all, but then they decided to leave one room exactly as it was. And as you can imagine, that was incredibly powerful to see that. Um, but I had the thought at the moment um, to have Tulai. Tulai had brought a letter from her great grandfather that he had written from there. And so I had her, they allowed us to let her stand in the cell and take a picture with her great grandfather's letter and his picture in there. And we also got a picture um, with Joey Van Meesen and his great uncle standing in that room, a room just exactly like they would have been in at the time. And it was very powerful um, to realize that, you know, right there in that story, we had four people that are connected with John Lau's story, all in that orange hotel, and they'd been there. So... Uh, that was a special moment that I did not expect. And another thing that gave me great joy is Joey is a tour guide in the Belgium area and the Holland area. And he knows those areas really well. He's always taking families in the footsteps of their relatives. He'd never been to the Orange Hotel. And here I was taking him in the footsteps of his great uncle. And he said that to me at one point, like, I'm usually doing this for everybody else. I didn't expect to be here. So oh, that just made me incredibly happy. And it's where filmmaking for me becomes much more than just, you know, uh, making a film to get it done. It's really this discovery process that I love. Um, we were fortunate enough to meet with one of the guys that runs the Orange Hotel and they were so incredibly gracious. They desperately want their story told and so they offered us all of the images that they have um, and allowed us to use those as well as some um, video of, you know, of the place. And they said that we could film there. So
So we can do a few reenactments there. We can also do our interviews there. I'd love to interview Tulai and, jo uh, and Joey in that cell room. Um, it's very striking visually. So I think that will be cool. Uh, and there was one person that wrote um, on the walls, sort of the battle cry for the Dutch was orange will win. And of course, everybody knows that orange is the Dutch color. And so someone had written Wilhelmina and, you know, I think it's something like Wilhelmina and the Dutch will, you know, Ozio, you know, orange will win. And um, I thought, man, it looks so cool. And that would be a great way to kind of start our movie with uh, that kind of image scrib scribbled on that brick wall. So I got a few images of how I would think things could be um, as we were filming that. So that's always cool. You know, Michelle, like when I get into a place, all of a sudden I begin to see things and they, they start to make sense in my mind of how I want to film something or what I think is how the story would develop. So, yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times that we were together last week and Christian would say, I love my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's so true. So. It's so true. I think I probably should have been some sort of like archaeologist or some sort of, um, you know, I don't know, detective, because that's what's so amazing is uncovering these things for people. I mean, we were sitting in the Orange Hotel and Tulai learned stuff about people in her family. You know, there, she was just, you could see things firing in her brain. She's researched this for 20 years. But when you come, when I've come in and started asking questions and giving other information, it causes her to dig a little more and we find other stuff. Uh, so it's just, fantastic it's fantastic and today we had the added benefit of being with Helen Patton so it was so amazing I love being with her because you know people have no idea who she is and she's really unassuming she doesn't come in and be like hey I'm Helen Patton you know um but she uh, she's hosting me this week uh, in this lovely little town of Buron or Buren, I'd say it like Buren. <laughs> I don't know how they say it here in Holland. But anyway, if anybody ever gets a chance to come, this is a darling, darling little town. And um, Jason, you Google it. It's B-U-R-E-N, Netherlands. Uh, it's in the center southwest corner of the Netherlands. It is this quaint old town. There was a castle here. And I think like the Van Buren's probably descended from this line or something like that uh, because the prince wrote in, he married the daughter. They had these adorable little children and set up this beautiful quaint town uh, with brick lined streets and uh, wonderful little shops. And I finally got to do something touristy, a little shopping and a little eating by a river. So that was fun. And all of that was because Helen Patton said, you need to come to this town. It's creative and beautiful and you'll love it. So thank you, Helen, for that. Uh, she came with us to the Orange Hotel and she is also an executive producer on The Brave Dutch because she uh, knows a lot of people in this area. Her fiance is Dutch and lives not far away. And, you know, I was able to tell the people that run the Orange Hotel, this is General George Patton's granddaughter. And, you know, they were just you know, couldn't believe it. They were so excited. And um, that sort of added some excitement to, to our time there. Um, and she had some great ideas uh, there too. So that was fabulous. Um, after that, she took me to, to another thing I want to tell you about. Um, there is this amazing museum in The Hague. Have you ever been here, Michelle, been to The Hague? Uh, no, not matter. 
And, and there is, uh, I mean, I don't know how you pronounce it. This is, again, another one of the Dutch problems. But she wanted me to see a museum. And it's, I think it's called the Mesdak or the uh, Mesdak Museum. Uh, it's a museum in The Hague. And it was done by this painter, Mesdak, uh, in 1880. And he had this idea for um, creating this panorama of, of The Hague. And so he bought this building and inside this building, he created this 360 experience where in the middle, it's like you're in a tent on the top of a dune overlooking the ocean with a town and a canal behind you. And inside this dune, you know, there's like a, a canopy up at the top. And so he and four other painters began painting this gigantic panorama in four months they created this unbelievable, uh, beautiful city beach scene. And then they put this, you know, little, it looks like a gazebo in the middle that you stand on. They put sand down beneath it and threw in shovels and wooden shoes and all sorts of things. And it gives you the, the feeling that you're at the beach. Like it's so dimensional that you honestly are, get, you could get a little, thick because you you're in this experience and your eyes are so deceived um it blew my mind it was one of the most beautiful amazing things that i had ever seen uh so certainly worth a visit and then she took me to the beach where i got to see the beach in real life and i had no idea the hague had a beach but it was stunningly beautiful and it was a gray cloudy day so um yeah there's just I'm just yeah. trying to think of the logistics of four different painters trying to paint in the same style. And like, when we get done, it's like, oh, you were doing cubism? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he may, he, they may have been students of his or something, you know, interestingly enough, you know, it was all the rage at the time to have these, um, you know, lifelike uh, paintings, murals and things like that. But by the time they were finished, it wasn't in vogue anymore. And so uh, the exhibit never made money. And so the family eventually bought it back and it's just been kept in the family. But of course now it's this unbelievable work of art and I'm sure has paid for itself many times over. Um, but I, I specifically asked how it was painted and I recorded, we, I asked the um, little museum tour guide if I could interview her and she could tell us how it was done. I think this is a perfect, perfect thing to share with our Patreon supporters. So this is going to be a little bit of an extra piece. You can learn history about, um, you know, about this painter and about this little exhibit. You can see what it looks like for yourselves. Uh, so I will get Mindy Cook right on that. I'll upload it. And you guys who, who support us on Patreon can be really the first ones to see that. So that'll be cool. It sounded like he was the um, predecessor to virtual reality. It's what it felt like, Michelle. That's exactly what it felt like. And to think that he did that in 1880. I mean, exactly. come on. It's crazy. Amazing. Christian, I have, I have a question. Um, you know, you, you've got an idea of, of the 10 episodes you want to make, but you're constantly um, uncovering new information. So I'm sure that's affecting that. But before you can even make this, you, you've got to get investors are you also at the same time planning on how you want to 
pitch this, present this? I mean, what that's going to look like? Absolutely. I mean, when I'm sitting there today, you know, talking to the sky, it's, I already have the story and they're already pitching it. They're going to be pitching it like next week or the week after to, you know, all the cable channels and all the um, streaming platforms. And so they're going to be pitching it. But now I have so much more information to add to this pitch deck. So for example, just today, you know, the fact that the Orange Hotel is willing to be our partner, they're willing to let us film there. They're giving us already photos that we can include in our pitch deck, stories that we can include. The fact that I have three, actually three living relatives of people that stayed in the Orange Hotel who could be interviewed there. I mean, that's huge. You know, that's that's really a, a wonderful selling point. You know, one of the things that documentary filmmakers talk about is having access and investors want to know, do you have not only the story, but do you have the access to the people uh, to tell the story? And, you know, you really don't know that until you are in person. And what I've been so delighted by is that everywhere we've gone, when I have told this story and explained my passion and heart for the story, um, those typically reserved cold Dutch people, um, you know, open their arms and they're delighted to share their story. They're proud of their people and they want to be involved. Uh, this week, um, I reached out to the Dutch Army public affairs officer and I told them what I wanted to do. And I'm asking them for their official permission to support the project. Um, and if they do that, then I can have people in an official capacity helping us with all this research. And then we will be able to have access to their archives and that will make things much easier for us. Uh, but just like in France, I'm finding that people here are hungry to have their stories told and are willing to help make it happen. So that's super refreshing for sure. So yeah, go ahead, Michelle. But I was just gonna say, I, I think even more so in Holland because their story is is very little known. Um, already in Normandy and in France, we've seen lots of movies that have come out of, of um, the World War II history here. And I even think that, did, did you find it to be that people are even more enthusiastic in Holland than they, than they were in, in, in France and maybe even more willing to, to participate and to um, you know, accommodate and accommodating? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, they're kind of shocked. Like, I, I don't think that they have expected uh, anybody. I mean, it feels like it's like the first time that anybody's come in and said, you know, I want to tell these stories to the American public. One of the big challenges that I had today is I was in this incredible museum. And thankfully, with the exhibits, there were English descriptions of each thing that they had put up. But I went to look for any other information, be they books or anything else, and there was nothing in English. And that has been a barrier. You know, I've told them when we've gone in, you know, I want to know more about this. I want to learn, but everything is in Dutch. And which is confusing because everybody in the Netherlands takes English and can pretty much speak English. So it is confusing that they don't have things translated in English. But I'm, I mean, if there was, if there were buyers for those things, they would have made them. And that tells me a lot right there that English speaking people are not coming to places like the Orange Hotel because they're not curious. You know, they're curious about maybe the Americans that marched through the area or whatever, but they're not curious enough about the people that gave their lives. And that's what's so heartbreaking to me is that so many people were 
killed and tortured and maimed, you know, and for our servicemen. And our servicemen were not really the ones that were liberating them. I said this on last week's podcast. They just fell down in their area. And these people did, I mean, it's overwhelming to think about. They just fell down in their area and they gave up their time, their money, and their lives to help get those men back home to us. I mean, you know, Americans need to know that. They need to hear that story. And then they need to come visit places like the Orange Hotel. Because if we don't stand on guard, that same thing can happen anywhere. You know, as I've looked through all of these stories, be they in France or be they here, I am just stunned by man's inhumanity to man. You know, when I hear about what people did to other people just because they believe differently or they looked different, um, I'm like, how did they get there? How did they get there? How did they begin thinking that those people were vermin and weren't human and weren't real? You know, we do that by othering everyone else, right? They're not like us. We don't believe what they believe. They're not worth my time. I see it everywhere we are now. We can, we can isolate ourselves into our own echo chambers and, you know, think of the other as the enemy. And we're headed straight down that path. And I don't ever want that to happen again. There's a, a propaganda cartoon. It's American um, from, I don't know, maybe the, the 1940s or early 50s. And it's about um, if anyone preaches disunity, tries to pit one of you against the other, you know that person seeks to rob us of our freedoms and destroy our very lives. Mm. And that it's a very interesting piece of propaganda because it was about capitalism versus communism was what it was really about. And um, but the whole thing of what they were talking about in that propaganda cartoon was that don't let anyone ever point to someone else and say they're the enemy because in, unless they're actively trying to kill you, they're not. <laughs> it's so true. And, yeah. Jason, can you put that link in our notes as well? Where is that? Yeah. I'll see if I can find it. Um, okay. The main reason why I have it committed to memory is it's in a, a Bastille song. If you know Bastille, like Pompeii, like that song that was really popular in like 2010, he embedded that little chunk of that propaganda cartoon into one of the songs because oh, he thought it was so important yeah we'll that's see if cool. i can find it yeah please find that please find that michelle what did you learn since you've started on this new journey wow um there's so much i was um that was so new um and again i think just coming back to thinking that um all the European experiences were much like what the French had experienced. So, you know, historically there was there was so much to to learn and the differences between what happened in Holland as opposed to what happened in in, in Normandy and France, because even in France, you know, what happened in Normandy is not the same what happened um, in, in Paris. Uh, um, in, in Paris or in Brittany. The, um, liberated um, or the unoccupied part of France. So it was all different. Uh, so it, it was really eye-opening to, to learn uh, about the Dutch and their, their history during the war, during the occupation. 
question. And I think I would buy also um, how willing they were to resist the Nazis and the Germans and, and to really help those in, in need and not only just the allied soldiers, but the, the, the Jews or the other, you know, um, unwanted um, or un, undesired by the, the Nazis. So, um, so that was all very eye-opening um, experience for me. And, and it just was really something I hadn't expected at all. Yeah, me too. I second that completely. And I do hope that we will be able to tell the story in a way that the American people's eyes will be open, just like they were with the girl who wore freedom. Um, one thing I did discover this week that I didn't know existed is that the Netherlands has a Bible belt. Now, I oh, haven't, really? yeah, this is what Tulai told me. I, I haven't quite figured out how that's possible. But if yeah. you think about it, near The Hague, that is where um, Corey Tin Boom was. And she was a Christian that did hide Jews that eventually, you know, was caught. And I'm not sure which concentration camp she was uh, sent to. Jason, you can Google that and tell us, please. Um, but she, so, but what I have found uh, in the book, Travel by Dark, that we've been reading, um, that tells the Graham Warwick, John Lau story, uh, there are a lot of references to the Bible and to Christianity. Um, and I found the same ones at the Orange Hotel scribbled on the wall. So I see a lot of evidences of deep faith. And if you think about it, the, the Calvinist movement, the, the Dutch reform movement uh, the, in the United States had to originate here. So certainly there was this religious component here. Um, but I sure would love to learn more about that. So if you're listening to this and you understand the uh, where the Bible Belt is and how it how it got here, please let me know. Uh, who who was it that you wanted to know? Which Corrington oh, Boom? Corrington Boom. Story? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp. Ravensbrook. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. She did escape, and she was able to help people sort of the rest of her life. But yeah, she was a brave lady, and it was based on her faith. So we uh, we did an episode on her of uh, the Mister Phil show. Um, yes, you did. The Phil Vischer's uh, show about um, uh, heroes from history who were Christians. And uh, yeah, her story, that one, that one, that one was hard to, <laughs> it was hard to make. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was a lot of, it's a tough story. Yeah. I tell you, one thing that I have learned, Michelle, is you're right. It is a complicated, it was a complicated stew happening here in the Netherlands, um, politically, religiously, um, socially. And you just never knew. Um, I was in, in the Orange Hotel. I saw a letter today um, where a family member betrayed a family member. And so that, you know, that person was in the Orange Hotel. A neighbor betrayed a neighbor. And that person was in the Orange Hotel. And, you know, like I said, if we don't, if we don't watch ourselves, you know, we'll be right back there. Uh, and so it's important that we learn these stories and, and learn the lessons from them, um, because we certainly don't want to see that happen again. Right, Christian. It was like when we went to the um, museum in uh, Overloon, and um, they had an exhibit based on eight um, real people from um, the Netherlands 
um, during the war. And what was so interesting about it is that it was like this interactive um, exhibit where they would give the story, they would start off the story about the person and then you would um, have to answer um, how what you would do in their shoes. So at each step of the way, you had to decide, you know, do I go, essentially, do I go the route that they took or do I do the opposite? And um, it, it was just a, a, a phenomenal exhibit, I thought, because it just really made you think about if you were that in that position, what would you do? And it, and it wasn't clear cut, it wasn't black and white. Um, so it was a very, uh, uh, very reflective uh, exhibit on, you never really know too until you're put in that situation. Yeah, and one one exhibit uh, that was you know really caught my eye was they did an interview with Wilhelmina the Queen, and I've been familiar with Wilhelmina because I found the bracelet of my grandmother and Wilhelmina of the Netherlands was on it. So I felt you know I've known her for a while, and she was really thought poorly of because as soon as the surrender happened, she and her family and everyone fled to England. And so she did a radio interview where they asked her why she fled, you know, and in a sense posed the question to you, if you were me, what would you have done? You know, would you have stayed here and possibly, you know, been captured and killed and for what, you know, or would you have gone where you could continue to, you know, keep the Dutch stuff alive and keep overseeing the resistance from somewhere else. And it made you realize that it can look one way. It can look like she abandoned the people if you look at it from that point of view. But when you sit and you see things from her point of view, you can see that what she did actually helped her people more. So it did just make you think differently. Um, so Michelle, that was a, a great example. It was pretty powerful. Um, on a production note, I want to talk to you guys about what I've noticed this time versus last time um, with the girl who wore freedom. One of the things is that, of course, I have learned a lot of lessons. And one thing that I learned is stuff I'm good at and stuff I'm bad at. So one of the things I'm bad at is actually writing things down or keeping a schedule or I'm sort of like the ideas person, you know, I can come in and I can see things and I'm a vision person and I'm a connecting person and I can ask a lot of questions, but I'm not good at keeping what happened today and who do we need to follow up with? And, uh, but that is a gifting of Michelle. And not only that, she was a super good driver in all these silly little roads and getting us everywhere. Um, but at the end of every day, she would summarize uh, what we had done in the day um, and put down sort of the different things that we need to follow up on or the things that came from the day. And now we are creating, you know, on our Trello board, sort of the things that we discovered on this trip, the stuff we need to follow up on, uh, the things that we don't understand that we need to get more information about. Michelle, talk a little bit about, you know, what you've done this trip administratively to kind of keep the train on the track. Well, yeah, I think for, for one, keeping a, a summary of uh, what we visited, um, the contacts that we've made, um, and really trying to follow up with everybody um, immediately um, to try and get the partnerships working. Um, and so, yeah, just looking, 
looking forward to what's the next step already. So trying to prepare as much as possible um, for um, the next time we, we are able to come back to the Netherlands. Um, also trying to, to keep, gosh, the characters, trying to work out the characters and the research and the archives. Uh, the photo database, you know, already I'm thinking uh, the one thing we didn't do um, very well the first time around was the photos where the sourcing of the photos, already thinking ahead to the, the, the Bible for the rights and, and making sure that we have um, the release forms and the location forms. And so there's a lot of things already that I think we're already starting to think of. Um, that we hadn't necessarily done until the, you know, until a little bit on the later end, the first time around. Yeah, and quite frankly, I didn't expect this trip to be so rich. I thought I would be meeting people or, um, and really, I don't know, almost touring a little bit, but that hasn't happened at all. It has been all work, right. um, every day, um, meeting new people and discovering new things. And it just, it's been like a drinking from a fire hose, trying to, you know, ingest this whole history of, of people, you know, in like a five year period. And one of the things that I have to do at the end of every day, and I'm behind is a uh, catalog, all of the photos and videos that I'm taking and uploading them to our Google drive. So we can kind of, <laughs> I didn't plan on using iPhone footage the first time I was here. Uh, but you just, you just never know. And so I'm going to catalog all that and put it in. So yeah, it's been much more of a pre-production trip really than I had planned on. Uh, but we're still calling this the research phase, honestly. We're still just researching and learning what we know, what we don't know, and what we uh, right. what we need to know more of. How much but more time? Met... Sorry, go ahead, Josh. Oh, I was just going to ask how much more time you have, Christian. Well, uh, tomorrow we're going to go see Soldier of Orange, which is uh, this three-hour saga. I think I may have talked about that. It is the story of the resistance in one three-hour musical where you're in this like dome theater that you sit and then the whole stage moves around you and there's water and boats and, you know, stuff like that. So that's um, tomorrow. And then uh, Helen Patton and I are going to drive down to Margraten and we're going to pay our respects to Bill Moore, uh, who was assassinated. He was John Lyle's pilot and Bob Cole, who was uh, killed uh, up here as well. Um, he was one of the heroes in Carentan battle. And then we're going to meet up with Flo Plana, Joey Van Meesen and Thomas Boisson in Belgium. And we're going to, uh, they are going to take me on a trip and through the footsteps of my great grandfather, Jody Sumrall, and with the 84th Infantry Division. So I know I've got three of the best tour guides in Europe gonna take me on really a, a family, a family journey. So I'm looking forward to that. And then I should be home uh, you know, in another, I don't know, October 10th, something like that. Wow. <laughs> Quite the trip. Yes, it is. Yes, indeed. All right, well, Christian, as we wrap it up here, is there anything else you want to remind people, point them in a certain direction, check things out? Well, there's going to be a lot of links that Jason's going to put from this little conversation in our show notes. So I would certainly say um, educate yourself. Um, you know, you can go and look at the website for the Orange Hotel. Um, go and look at the website for the Koning Wilhelm Barracks III or the Graham Warwick Barracks. Um, look up Travel by Dark 
or who or Graham Work, the British medical doctor. Um, you know, go start educating yourself and come with us on this ride to learn more about about the Dutch people. And as far as the Girl Who Wore Freedom goes, we're still waiting for um, you know the deal to be signed between Virgil Films and FFS. We're still waiting to try to hopefully make more sales for the Girl Who Wore Freedom. Uh, people are still uh, posting about seeing it on Delta and are very excited about that. That makes me very happy. Um, we do have a, an event coming up at the Mastinet Military Academy on October 15, 16, 17, I think around in there where we're showing the film. And then we've got an event coming up um, at L'Oreal, which is a virtual event, and then Fort Bragg, which is open to the public, Fort Bragg Museum. That's vet Both of those are Veterans Week. Um, yeah, that, and if you want a, a DVD of The Girl Who Wore Freedom, write me, christiantnormidystories.com, and we'll uh, we'll see what we can do. And yeah, there's, I think that's about it from here. You can, um, you can go and see the Grueling Glory trailer at gruelingglory.com uh, and uh, follow us on social media. That's about it. Awesome. Well, Michelle, thank you for being our guest today and catching us up on your adventures. Well, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. And uh, thank you, listener, for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell, and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.